First Corinthians chapter two, verse one. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Who are coming to nothing? No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. The things God has prepared for those who love Him; these are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a, a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received. Is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. But considers them foolishness and cannot understand them, because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, brothers and sisters. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready; you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, "I follow Paul," and the other, "I follow Apollos." Are you not mere human beings? Thanks, Elena. Evening, all. Lovely to see you again. And uh, do join us to see、uh, Nathan and Sarah visiting again, and a couple of other new faces. Do、uh, please do stay afterwards and come and say hi and have some tea and coffee at the back. Uh, it'd be great to say hi and get to know you. Well, we started this、um, this series in two Corinthians just two Sundays ago,、uh, and when we started, I said that the reason we're going to spend a bit more than half of the year 
in um, 1 Corinthians, sorry, is that we want to learn the ways of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says. That's why he wrote the letter. He says, um, in his own words, I urge you, be imitators of me, learn my ways in Christ. But what does that mean? What, uh, what are his ways in Christ? What is it that he wants them and us to learn? Is it the answers to a set of questions specific to their circumstances and problems? Paul, we have these ten questions, we have these ten problems. Won't you answer our questions for us and tell us how to fix our problems? Well, no, it's not that. Not, not primarily. He does answer their questions. He does instruct them in how to solve the problems of the congregation. But he does something much more fundamental than that throughout the book. He teaches them how to interpret all of life through the lens of the gospel. How to live in light of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is still to do, has promised, in fact, still to do. That's the heart of it. Not a manual full of instructions on what to do in every imaginable situation in life. No, rather that the life of Christ would be formed in us and in them. That in every life situation, they and we would live out from Christ-shaped, spirit-filled hearts. So this letter, 1 Corinthians, is structured in five big sections. And in each section you'll see that Paul uh, has the same goal and he follows the same pattern. His goal, to teach the church the ways of Christ. His pattern, he describes the problem, whatever the practical or ethical or moral issue is that they're facing, And then he takes them down deep into some aspect of the gospel, some aspect of who Jesus is, what he has done, the fullness of salvation in him. And then he points them back to the issue, whatever it is, the practical thing or the ethical thing. And he says to them, now look at this issue again. But look at it now through the lens of the gospel and see it Christianly and think about it and feel and live Christianly with respect to this thing. That's what it means to grow up in Christ. That's what it means to be spiritually mature, to live out of a Christ-shaped heart. See, the Corinthians like to think of themselves as spiritually mature. But Paul says to them, verse 3 of, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 3, you are infants in Christ, people of the flesh, People of the flesh. Now, when we hear people of flesh, we tend to think of such things as maybe sexual immorality, greed, gluttony, violence, sins of that nature, sins that we physically commit. And certainly it can mean that, but in this context, Paul uses it a bit differently. Verse 3 of chapter 3, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Jealousy, strife, self-promotion, thinking yourselves better than one another, managing your social image and your rank within the community by who you associate with, of the flesh, living according to the values and the ways of the world, infants in Christ. Well, Keith, um, you'll remember, opened the first of these five major sections of the book for us last week. And you remember what the issue was, at least what the presenting issue was. 
the Corinthians were comparing themselves to one another based on who their favorite teacher was. So I'm a, a John Piper guy, says one. Well, Terry Virgo shook my hand once, says another. I had lunch with Bill James. I like Wayne's preaching the best. I'm in Nicolette's journey group. Well, my granny was baptized by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Beat that. Infants in Christ, Paul calls them. Of the flesh. Now, it's not that Paul had any problem with the church learning from lots of different good leaders, good teachers. Of course, he wanted them to. He wanted them to learn from all true gospel-hearted leaders in their church and in ours. We are richly blessed to have so many good and godly leaders and teachers in this church to learn from. The issue is not having many good teachers and godly leaders. The issue is when, or it's not even just being honest and admitting that you connect with some better than others. That's just a reality of human life. We do just connect easier and more deeply with some people than others. No problem. The issue is when that or anything else becomes the basis for divisive comparison. The presenting issue in Corinth, the surface of it, was teachers. The heart issue was jealousy, strife, division, comparison, one-upmanship, better-than-ism. And this was uh, simply the way of the world. And it still is today. The problem was that there was too much Corinth in the church in Corinth. You remember verse 2 of chapter 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. But they weren't living like those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were living like Corinthians in Corinth. And so as their founding apostle, as a wise pastor, as their father in the faith, Paul now brings them back to the gospel. He reminds them that they are the church sanctified in Christ. They are declared holy in him and must now become holy like him. Paul takes them back to the cross. He doesn't just say, stop comparing, stop trying to outdo each other, stop all this better than-ism. No, he says, come back to the cross. Don't you remember what I preached to you? Don't you remember the message that led to your salvation? I proclaim to you, verse 2 of chapter 2, nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, by the world standards, maybe speaking with a Corinthian accent makes you, be- makes you think that you're better than someone else. Maybe having more money or a bigger house makes you better than. Maybe that you went to Corinth Boys High School makes you better than. Maybe that you're a resident of an important city of the great empire makes you better than. Come back to the cross, Paul says, and see again the price of your salvation. See Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of of God the Father, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the King of Angels, Jesus, who is the great treasure of heaven, crucified for you. Jesus crucified was the price of your salvation. Behold the man upon the cross, 
your guilt upon his shoulders. It was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So how exactly, dear friends, do all our better thans square up to the reality of what our salvation cost? Come back to the cross. Repent the ways of Corinth. Repent the ways of the world in our hearts. Let's be cross-hearted. It may be, and uh, I would expect it to be the case, that there are perhaps some here this afternoon who've never been to the cross, who've not themselves received forgiveness of sin, who've not been reconciled to God in love through Jesus Christ crucified. If that's you, friend, you can receive forgiveness right now. You can look to Christ crucified. Hate your sin. Turn away from it. Christ will take it all. You can be reconciled to God in love right now. But now, follow me, says Paul. Don't walk the Corinthian way anymore. Walk the cross way. Live as I did when I was with you. You saw my ways in Christ, he says. I didn't come to you merely as a deliverer of a message. I lived daily among you as one shaped from the inside out by that message. I didn't come to you as one better than anybody else. I came to you as one shaped by the reality that it was my sin that held him to the cross. Now remember who it is that's saying this. Paul had just said to them, towards the end of chapter 1, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But Paul was. If anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in the standards of the world, Paul had said, I have more. A true Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a citizen of Rome, trained as a Pharisee under one of the most revered scholars of his day, Paul had been groomed from birth for rulership of Jewish religious and political affairs in Roman Palestine. He was an intellectual giant, born into the right family, with the right connections, educated, tutored personally by one of the greatest minds of his day, born and groomed for rulership, and all the privilege and the wealth and the esteem and the respect and the honor that went with it. But chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, brothers, but these were not his brothers, these were Gentiles, and not just Gentiles, not morally upright Gentiles. In chapter 6, he says of them, some of you were sexually immoral, idolaters, drunkards, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, slanderers, swindlers. If ever there was a man who could have said to another, I am better than, it was Paul to these Corinthians. But Paul lived from the foot of the cross, and there, there is no better than. So I came to you, brothers, and I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know, not just to know about, 
to know him. In a letter to another church, Paul says, All the treasures of the world I count as less than nothing compared to the treasure of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so to share with him in resurrection life. Paul wanted to know Jesus. And when he had been with the Corinthians a couple of years uh, before writing this letter, he had lived among them knowing Jesus, living a Jesus-shaped life, a cross-shaped life before them. Paul could have out-argued the arguers. He could have out-philosophized the philosophers. He could have out-spiritualized those who thought they were the most spiritual. Paul had been caught up to heaven by the Lord and seen and heard things that the Lord forbade him to speak of. No one could touch Paul for knowledge, for rhetorical skill, for cultural sophistication, for spiritual experience. But I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Verse 3. And my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a plain message of a crucified man from the lips of his crucified servant. Paul had no swagger, no air of superiority about him. He didn't strut about as the great apostle. No, he lived in meekness and in trembling with a great sense of his inadequacy for the task to which he'd been called. It's something that really encouraged me recently when, uh, when I, and uh, on behalf of the elders, spoke with some of the, la- the ladies who are going to be leading journey groups for us, their responses were all essentially the same. Me? <laughs> really? Lead? Are you sure? Isn't there somebody else who could do this better than me? No sense of self-assurance. No sense of entitlement to a position of leadership. No sense of, yes, I've got this. I know what to do. Leave it with me. No problem. None of that. Quite the opposite. Hesitant, took time talking through the scriptures together, praying about it, allowing the Holy Spirit to do the persuading that this is his call to them, not mine, not the elders. The Lord has called them to this. Be wary, friends, of the self-assured Christian leader. One day, KCC will be looking for a pastor to replace me. Who knows the Lord's timing, but it will happen one day. And when the day comes, the man who says, whether explicitly or in his manner or secretly in his heart, and may the Lord give us wisdom to discern, but the man who says, I can do the job. (laughs) What Marco does, no big deal, I can do it. (laughs) That man is not fit to care for the Lord's people. In weakness and fear and trembling I was with you, says Paul. He lived from the foot of the cross. He lived in the constant knowing that the cross was the price of his life. And he preached, and he taught, and he prayed, and he was beaten and shipwrecked and cold and hungry, imprisoned. He poured out his life as an offering, all from the foot of the cross. Everything about Paul, his thinking, his loving, his suffering, his passions, everything was shaped by the cross, by Jesus Christ crucified. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, come here, come to the foot of the cross with me. 
Look again at who it is that suffered for you on that cross. Jesus, look again at the price of your salvation. Remember how I lived among you. Remember my cross-shaped life. Look closely at how the cross shapes everything about me. Now here, from the foot of the cross, look at your behavior. Look at all your better thans. And tell me now how they measure up here under the cross. Paul is calling them to cross-shaped lives. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus suffered and died on the cross to save you from the soon coming wrath of God, not to save you from the cross. You are saved because of the cross of Christ. And now you must be shaped by the cross of Christ. Glorified one day you will be. Crucified every day you must be. The Corinthians like to think of themselves as spiritually mature. An impressive list of things that made them better than others. Able to understand the niceties of philosophical arguments. An appreciation for fine rhetoric, cultural sophistication, abundance of spiritual experiences. Whatever. Infants in Christ, says Paul. Foolishness. No different to the world around you. Too much Corinth in the church of God in Corinth. The way of true wisdom is the way of the cross. It's not a wisdom of this age or even of this world. Verse 6 of chapter 2. No, this world is passing away. The wisdom of God that looks like utter foolishness to all the world is simply this. Jesus Christ crucified. This is the wisdom that was hidden from eternity past but has been revealed in history. This is what no eye could see, what no ear could hear, what the hearts of men could not imagine, that God, in his infinite wisdom, has accomplished the salvation of all who believe and trust themselves wholly to him in life and in death, to Jesus Christ crucified. But a crucified Savior goes so contrary to the ways and the wisdom of this world that it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to see it as wisdom. To the human mind, the ways of God, demonstrated most fully in Christ on the cross, just look like utter foolishness. And so obviously, to live in the way of Christ, to walk the way of the cross, also just looks ridiculous. Think how Paul's family and friends must have thought of his new life. All the advantages and opportunities in the world. Born to and groomed for a gold-plated life. Now an itinerant preacher to a misunderstood and despised sect. Dependent at times on the financial support of others, Gentiles no less, for his next meal. At times having to work with his own hands. A manual worker, Paul, the great mind, trained and tutored under Gamaliel, no permanent home of his own, frequently in prison, flogged, beaten, stoned, five times whipped with the 39 lashes, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty, tired, so poor that he couldn't afford a warm coat for winter and had to ask Timothy to bring him one. 
And what for? For the love of a crucified carpenter and his followers, most of whom ranked among the down and outs of society, the not wise, the not powerful, the not noble, the not connected, the not wealthy. For the love of Jesus Christ crucified and all his knots, what did Paul's life look like to his family and the friends and colleagues of his younger days? Foolishness, ridiculous, absurd, a wasted life. But what did Paul think of his wasted life? For Christ's sake, he said, I delight, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. I want to know Christ, he said, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, to become like him in his death and so to share in his resurrection life. You see, from the foot of the cross, the world looks very different. All the scales by which we measure are turned upside down. For Christ, the one on the cross, came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life. So those who would be greatest among us should become the servants of all, just as he was, giving our lives away in 10,000 ways. And you cannot do it, (laughs) not on your own. Your flesh nature does not want to go the crossway. Your natural human mind and instincts cannot understand the way of the cross. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. That's essentially what Paul is arguing towards the end of chapter 2. You cannot understand the ways of God in yourself. They are foolishness to the natural mind. Verse 14 of chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able, not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so, dear friend, if you sense your heart drawn now, strangely, against the tide of natural human reason, if the treasures and the pleasures of this world are fading into shadow in your eyes, if the way of the cross looks to you beautiful, and praise God, for His Holy Spirit dwells in you and is transforming you to be like Jesus. Now here, from the foot of the cross, hear again Paul's words to those who were so sure that they were better than. From verse 1 of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? When one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? No, brothers and sisters. You are those who have received the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. By what measure are any one of us better than another? 
What standards, what values of the world would allow any one of us to think of ourselves as above our brothers or sisters in Christ? Let's have no better thans among us. Let's come back to the cross, to Christ crucified. And here, from the foot of the cross, let us live together in the way of the cross. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father, this is the great mystery that was hidden from the foundation of the world, the great revelation of who you are, of your wisdom, of your love, of your grace, your Son, the King of heaven, commander of angels, the eternally begotten beloved of your heart, crucified for such as us. Father, if there are any here this afternoon who have not yet come to the cross, I pray you would be at work in their hearts right now to open their eyes to see that this thing that looks so foolish to the world is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened, the greatest display of love ever was or ever will be, Jesus Christ crucified. And may the reality of Christ crucified live in our hearts by the power of the Spirit and change us from the inside out to be more like our Savior who we love. Make us a cross-shaped people living daily at the foot of the cross, living into every situation of life from the foot of the cross. May it be the all-consuming passion of our hearts to say like Paul, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, to be conformed to him, to share in his sufferings, to walk as he walked, and so one day to share his resurrection life. Be glorified, Father, in doing this in us that we cannot do for your glory. Amen.